Joel Corey. Nothing personal word of the day is Joel Corey. Can you believe we have him for a Samson sit down? He is an NFL salary cap expert for CBS, former sports agent. And you know how we love sports agents are nothing personal. And despite all of that, Joel has agreed to do a sit down with us and I couldn't be happier. Welcome to nothing personal, Joel. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Can you believe there's a cottage industry that you are a part of that is salary cap experts? You couldn't do that in MLB because there is no salary cap. What made you become a salary cap expert other than taking calculus? I always had an interest in statistics. I was a little kid that would study baseball statistics, basketball statistics, read box scores incessantly. So it was kind of a natural thing for me. I went to law school at UCLA and took a sports law class, which had a project with a fictitious baseball player, the Dodgers general counsel, Sam Fernandez, participating in the project. He and the professor thought I'd do well, and that led to an internship in a sports agency. And my boss, Leonard Amato, was representing Hakeem Olajuwon and Ronnie Lott at the time, and then signed Shaquille O'Neal. So that's how I got into the industry. So did you ever have to get involved in recruiting early on? Because you just named, like, top-of-the-class players, Shaquille and Hakeem and Ronnie Lott. Did you get involved? Because in baseball, the hardest part about being an agent is that you have to recruit and you're recruiting kids basically because in baseball we draft them at 18 out of high school and it can be sort of Jerry Maguire like trying to get these kids to to join with you was that one of the tougher parts of your job particularly when I was younger because I started at 25 and I'm not much older than players so if parents are involved like, okay, what do you know? You're, you're basically like my kid's age. But I can also relate to the players better because I was a peer more than anything else. I needed Leonard or Gary Uberstein, who was head of the football department, to close, help me close guys at that point in time. And then as I got older, I didn't necessarily need that type of help because you're right that to be agent, you can you can negotiate the best contract in the world, but if you can't sign anybody, you're not an agent. And recruiting is basically sales, so you have to have some sort of ability to ability to be a salesperson and also an ability to close somebody if you really want to be a successful agent. So give your closing line, because clo- what how what's your best way to close a rising young star who you figure to be a first round pick? Well, if you the better you establish a relationship and a rapport with him with them, then the easier it is to get them to sign. Can typically in football, they'll talk to maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten agents, and then they all start sounding the same after a while. So if you are in the final group and you have the final and you're one of three or four who get final meetings, you want to go first. And want to try to get them to sign before they take the other meetings, because if you walk at that door, the odds of you getting that particular player start to decrease because they're going to end up hearing things from other people and it may become the last guy in the doors guy who ends up getting the player. So did you engage in poaching? Um, to a degree, not where I'm going to actively make somebody unhappy. You can admit it. Come on, Joe. No, but but the way, well, technically under NFLPA rules, you can't approach someone who is under contract, but if they approach you, then the door is open. And a lot of agents, well, not a lot, well, some agents have the philosophy that if I 
sign seven, lose three, recruit and don't service, I'm still plus four each year. And I, I've always thought that if you could put players in a time machine, have them go three, four years into their, in their, into their career, come back with that knowledge that at least 70% of the decisions they make with the agent would be different. Now, we ended up getting a lot of veteran referrals uh, from other clients because we tried to service clients and do something besides just negotiate a contract. And when you do that, you also attract the attention of unhappy players. And I'd say the most famous veteran referral we got was we had a journeyman defensive lineman who went to the Vikings. And he happened to befriend pretty early in his Pro Bowl part of his career John Randall. And we ended up getting John Randall. Nobody knew he was looking to switch agents. We flew up on an off day, met with John and his then and his wife at the time. And nobody else got a chance to sit in front of him. We signed him. John Randall ended up being a second ballot Hall of Famer. So if you take care of your own clients, then that can lead to other clients because particularly in a football locker room, players cluster more by positions than anything else and they'll talk and if you have someone who is a lesser player who's getting marketing deals that a star player isn't star player is going to take notice of that so i should point out that in the clubhouse we're always aware of the rule that agents cannot approach signed players but we also witnessed every day is players chirping amongst themselves they're comparing always i say this on nothing personal quite a bit Players would look at in-game videos and count the number of times they appear in a highlight and then complain to me if they only appeared in 10 highlights for the hype-up video in the ninth inning and a teammate appeared in 12 clips. They're keeping track of stuff. Players keep track of what agents do for them. And then a player will go to another player and say, hey, how did you get that done? They'll say, oh, that's my agent. I got the greatest agent in the world. Do you want to meet him? Exactly. That's how that's how that stuff happened with John. We ended up getting um, Patrick Sertan, whose son is going to be a first round pick, is a referral through through the finance through his financial advisor. So if you end up doing a good job for your current clients, that can lead to other businesses we found. Did you find that the way to make more money off your players was to engage them in every aspect of their life, not just marketing, but also doing their money, their investing. So teaming with a financial advisor, dealing with whatever attorneys they may need in life, whether they're closing on a house or getting a divorce or whatever they're doing. Were you a all in agent, like the point person for your players? Yes. Comprehensive services Um, did not do financial work because I'm smart enough to know enough in that area that I'm not equipped to handle anyone's money, but would oversee it and act as a check and balance. We had an open book policy where there's, we had nothing to hide. So if the financial advisor wanted to take a look at what we're doing, fine. If the accountant wanted to take a look at what we're doing, fine. And then you would oversee legal matters in whatever area it is, whether it's family law or they're trying to do a will and trust or something like that. You'd be the point person for everything. I think agents get a bad name by me and they shouldn't because the fact is that you provide a service to young people who are overwhelmed. They're kids. 
certainly in baseball, they're kids. They have no business experience. All they want to do is play baseball. That's all they've ever done. They've never been told no. They've always been the best at what they've done at every level. And then they're being brought into a world with executives who are far more experienced, far more polished. And what agents do is in most cases, they represent the player's best interest. But then there's some agents who take advantage of players. And uh, that is something that I know you saw in your career. And that's a tough part. I, I'm wondering what led to you to change your path and sort of segue out of agency into your next chapter. Oh, you're right. You did see some unscrupulous agents and there's the old joke. What's a hundred attorneys at the bottom of the ocean. A A good good start. start. Yeah. That also applies to, to agents because agents get demonized, particularly at the collegiate level. And you would think that the one group of people who should understand the need to recruit coaches would have some sort of empathy for agents, but they typically want to keep agents as far away from their programs as possible. And agents are considered the boogeyman, so to speak, on college campuses. There are some who've earned that reputation. There are others who go by the book, you hear all regulations. So that's, that's a non-issue. But one of the things for me, I started getting burned out on doing everything, being someone who would provide a multitude of services. People would sometimes ask me what I did for a living. And I would jokingly say professional babysitter, because with the younger guys, there is a degree to that. You try to teach them how to be equipped to do things. So as they grow throughout their career, and hopefully it exceeds the average length of a career, and it's a long one, that they're able to do things on their own, as opposed to having to rely on you. If for a 20-year-old, you that's expected. That comes to territory. People don't write checks anymore, but I remember at first being a little taken aback, having to teach someone how to write a check. So you never a checking account. I guess if you grow up and you don't have a lot of means, why would you ever need a checking account or how to do that? So you have to teach them basic life skills, particularly the young ones. If you get a veteran referral, then those guys are used to having agents who don't service them. So anything you do, they are very appreciative, and they've learned how to be more self-reliant. We had a player named Luis Castillo. He batted second for us when we won the World Series in 2003, and he would get paid. He was being paid millions of dollars, and our CFO came to us and said, we have a problem with Louis. Uh, he's not depositing his checks, and went down to the clubhouse and spoke to him, and in his uh, cubby were about three and a half million dollars of checks. Wow. <laughs> and we said, Louie, what, what are you doing with these? He said, Bobby, these, these are nothing. What, what is this? And I said, Louie, that's your money. He said, oh, I thought it just would be in my account. Wow. He was a major leaguer who didn't Whoa. do direct deposit because it was the player's choice. His agent wasn't paying attention and he had uncashed checks in the millions. So what you're saying is so spot on. I've seen it in person, especially with players who come in out of the Dominican at 16 when we take them and they just have not had means and they don't have experience. Even sometimes sons of former major leaguers just are not very on top of it. So the role you play is significant. How upset are you to miss the NIL boat? That would be a game changer in terms of the agent business because once that ultimately takes effect in the next year or so, then you're going to have guys who will have marketing agents and you already start early in baseball, hockey and basketball recruiting, but in football, 
a player can't declare for the draft until three years have elapsed from his high school graduation. That's going to be a huge game changer for football because now you'll start recruiting the Trevor Lawrence's of the world when they come into college, because if you become the marketing agent and you do a good job as the marketing agent, presumably you become the contract agent. So you're going to see particularly football players get recruited at an earlier age. You've seen baseball players and basketball players like Zion Williamson was probably getting recruited when he was a freshman, sophomore in high school, because you knew he was probably going to be an NBA player and a high lottery pick and a one and done. But with football, it's going to change tremendously since now you start recruiting those guys at an earlier age and you want to be the marketing person and generate money from that standpoint. The one person I think is going to capitalize on NIL more so than anyone is not a male basketball or football player. Paige Beckers from UConn has the biggest social media following of any athlete who will be returning to college next year. So I expect her to do well from that standpoint. Because she'll be a social media influencer who can actually get paid for being an influencer. Right, exactly. So there's going to be agents at the Friday Night Lights now. Oh, no doubt about that. Because before, you wouldn't do you wouldn't do that football. In football, you don't necessarily see a direct correlation from being a five-star recruit to being a high draft pick. Let's take Sam Darnold's um, year. No, let's say it was Jared Goff's year, I should say. Jared Goff's year. He wasn't the top guy coming in. It was a guy named Max Brown was the top quarterback in the country. You're like, who is Max Brown? Never heard of him. Well, Max Brown was the guy who succeeded Cody Kessler at USC and ultimately lost his job after two or three stars to Sam Darnold. Max Brown never signed an NFL contract and has never played an NFL snap. Jared Goff was not the guy that year, ends up being the first pick in the draft. So you'll make more mistakes with the football players um, from a name, image, and likeness standpoint. But if you are on the right one, it could repay you huge dividends. I wasn't going to get into this, but I feel like I have to because it flows with this conversation on NIL. Do you not see an opportunity for fraud when you've got players who are deciding where to go to college? And they are, they're going to have agents. I promise you that. And you agree. They're going to be called marketing agents, but they're going to be full-fledged, I guess, certified agents. And there's going to be deals that are cut. And do you not see the possibility of bigger programs offering more money, but doing it through the back door, whether it's through boosters or through local companies, you're going to get a car, you're going to get clothes, all the stuff that in theory used to be under the table now becomes over the table. And what, what, what I thought NIL was supposed to do was try to level the playing field, but I'm concerned that it'll make the playing field even more unbalanced. Yeah, that's a, that's a distinct possibility. And you're going to see a place like Nebraska, the only game in town in Lincoln, Nebraska, there are no professional sports teams there. So uh, Nebraska used to have a very prominent football team in the days of Tom Osborne. It's kind of fallen off the radar screen. Hopefully Scott Frost can get back there, but that could be a game changer for Nebraska. I, I remember when they used to get guys to come out of Florida and Los Angeles to go to Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm like, why would you go there in the cold? But, if you're able to create exposure for these guys, yes. And there are going to be some things that need to be worked out because our players going to be able to have deals which conflict with the school sponsors. And particularly we're talking like the shoe deal affiliation. So I'm curious to see how that all gets worked out. 
Well, it'll be worked out in the favor of the agents and the players. I'm confident because the atmosphere right now is the everyone thinks, including people in Washington, that it's simply unfair what's going on in college sports. And there likely will be a legislative response to all of this. But at the end of the day, the money should trickle down to people who deserve to get paid. I just worry about schools thinking that they're now going to be able to compete for players and it's going to go back to back back room dealings. And then I think they're going to have to adjust. I think the way NIL is released when it happens, it's going to be very different five years from that point. Oh, no doubt about that. And then the big change with collegiate athletics is for football and basketball you're going to have that one-time transfer rule where you don't have to sit out a year so you're going to see guys who come in one year this year they have that in the nba in the in the basketball transfer portal is ridiculous it's almost like free agency uh this year so you're going to see that coming into play as well in terms of trying to entice guys to go from one school to the next when they have their one free transfer. So as an agent, are you basically putting a flagpole down with the player and saying, come to come to me. We are available to go anywhere. Give me your best marketing deal. And that's how we'll choose. Because in a, in a, in a one and done scenario in the, in basketball, I'm not sure it has an impact in football. If the rule is you still need three years, NIL is good, but you still get the real money for these players and these kids, they got it to the NFL and, and, and sign contracts. So will, do you think as an agent that you would direct your player to the best program or would you direct the player to the best deal? Probably a balancing act. Um, Cause one, you got to get to the NFL. So you want to go to a program. If you're good, you, they're going to find you anywhere, but you want to go to a program which produces NFL players more than not. And it's also going to depend on the kid. If he's one of these kids who's more academically oriented, then he's going to look at like a Stanford or something like that. Um, and then you want to look at what school would I be able to capitalize from a marketing standpoint through NIL. So I think it's really going to be a balancing act, even though there are going to be some where we're just going to go have tunnel vision, where can I get the most money? All else is a secondary consideration. But if I'm advising someone, I'd have them look at the total picture. How honest were you with your guys when you would sign them in terms of their their own delusions about their careers? Were you a straight shooting type of agent or were you willing to allow players to believe they were something they were not? Well, I would try to under promise and over deliver. I also think that if you can't be candid with a client, you're doing them a disservice. So you also have to balance being tactful and know your client because there were some clients that we had type relationship where I could just be blunt and tell them X, Y, and Z. There are others where I'd have to kind of massage it and weave it in and sometimes make a player uh, over time think it's his idea as opposed to my idea. So it all depended on the relationship with the client. You have to know your client to know how you're going to deal with them. But one of the things that I think is a problem with agents is some of them are afraid to tell players what they need to hear and will only tell them what they want to hear out of a fear of getting fired, which doesn't do anybody any good. That's the major problem, right? Because in baseball, you're, you spend time recruiting a player. You actually lose money on that player as they go through the minor leagues. You're supporting them in many cases, not quite as bad as a Busconi in, in the Dominican, but you're certainly 
spending money. You're investing in a player, hoping that the investment pays off, and that doesn't pay off till arbitration, which is three years into your Major League Baseball career when you first start making above the minimum. And I came across so many times when players were heading into arbitration, and they had a view that came from their agent about what they'd get paid in arbitration. And we'd sit with the player. I would sit with the player before going into the room, before actually the hearing, and say, here's what you're not being told. Here's who we're going to compare you to. We're not going to keep it secret. Here's the four players. Look at your stats. Look at this player's stats. Can you tell who's who? Here's what that player made. And then the player always said, my agent's not using that player. My agent told me that I'm more like this other player. And look what he's getting paid. And I always found it to be so unfair to the player because they were just like pawns in fights between agents and presidents as they're trying to get the most money. We're trying to get the least money. And they don't often tell the player what the player needs to hear. So it's amazing that you did do that because you are you're the unicorn. There's some agents who do that, that that I know personally, but I don't I think it's more the exception than the rule. And I've always been fascinated by baseball arbitration just because it's zero sum game where the arbitrator picks one side or the other doesn't come up with his own number based on the evidence he hears. And since I was a data driven person who went to law school, I always thought that if you had that in football, I would do better because I would formulate arguments based on fact. And sometimes in negotiations, the other side will ignore that type of stuff. In arbitration type situation, you can't. The entire strategy is a midpoint based strategy because all we have to prove to the arbitrators is that the player deserves $1 under the midpoint. Because if you prove $1 under the midpoint, they have no choice but to rule with your number, which is way below the midpoint, obviously. So it is a definitely different type of argument. But the other problem with arbitration, it's very much possession arrow dominated. So we'd go into hearings where the clubs had won the last four hearings in a row. And we knew no matter what the facts of the case were, the arbitrators were going to award the player number because arbitrators are hired by both the union and the owners. And they agree on the list of arbitrators each year. And each side has the right to not hire back any number of arbitrators they want without any blowback or questions. And if you have an arbitrator who rules too much on one side, that side knows he's going to be gone next year. So possession arrow is something great. I hope that arbitration does not come to football in that way. It is not a pleasant thing to do with a player. You basically spend an hour telling that player how much he sucks. And then afterward, you have to say how much you love them and can't wait to have them in spring training the next day. And uh, a lot, lot of players I had took it very personally. Yeah, that's why most players aren't going to negotiate their own contracts just because they don't want – if they're equipped to do it, they don't want to hear the negative stuff. The team is going to be reluctant to say the negative stuff. I know when Jimmy Graham was franchised, he wanted to be classified as a wide receiver as opposed to a tight end, filed a grievance over that. And when they had the uh, hearing, he was sitting in the room and got to hear all the negative stuff that the Saints were saying about him. And it did affect him. And they ultimately signed him to a long-term deal and traded him a year later. That happens quite a bit, actually. That's happening so much more in football. I want to segue to the NFL and ask you about your salary cap expertise because I've spent some time with people who are salary cap experts in the NBA. You're the first person with whom I've been able to spend time with who's a salary cap expert in the NFL. Would you be willing to admit that your job 
is to not just understand the cap, but to actually understand how to get around the cap? Or am I being too cynical? No, actually, yeah, you have to figure out how to circumvent it, how you can try to cheat the cap, what loopholes there are. Uh, otherwise, you're not doing your job. Um, and ultimately, when someone does create a good loophole, there's usually some sort of grievance from one side or the other. We used to see that in basketball all the time with uh, when you could have your Larry Bird rights. It used to be if you signed, because it's something we did with Wayman Tisdale years ago, because um, he was a Armato, great player. He, actually, he was a very good bass player. <laughs> Um, he, he, we, uh, represented, uh, Wayman, um, from the midpoint of his career. And when he left Sacramento, he went to the Suns. And back then Larry Bird rights would accrue that you played one year. He did that. Danny Manning did that. Then Chris Dudley did that when he signed a deal, I think to go to the Knicks and ownership, the team side started filing grievances against that thinking that was circumventing the cap. So ultimately, they won the grievance, but the guys who did that were grandfathered in. Now it is three years you have bird rights before you can have bird rights. But that is part of your job if you're an expert for the cap in any sport is to try to find ways where you can be creative and get around what seem to be constraints for the cap. So you sound sort of like a tax attorney then. Uh, in a, in a, uh, yeah, in a way, except you're not dealing with the IRS code. <laughs> well, but it's, it's thinner, but you're dealing with the, the salary cap rules. And one of the reasons why we never wanted a salary cap in baseball is because we felt as though we'd attract too many people like you. <laughs> That's exactly, by the way, your job comes up when owners meet in baseball. And what would happen when a, if a salary cap ever came to baseball, that there'd be a whole cottage industry because it happened with the luxury tax. Right now in baseball, there's the competitive balance tax, which acts sort of like a salary cap because teams don't want to go over it because of the penalties. And so what teams do is they hire really smart people like you who try to find ways and they succeed at structuring contracts so that the salary, the way it's computed under the collective bargaining agreement does not count fully toward the competitive balance tax. So you'd have a job in baseball in two seconds, but if we had a salary cap, you'd have an even bigger job. Is that why, are you in favor of salary caps, by the way? Personally, no, I'm not, because I think owners became rich for a reason, and the salary cap is something which ensures a profit for the owners. I don't think, any, I know sports owners don't treat their business like they do other businesses, but they're not going to spend into oblivion to where they go out of business. At some point, fiscal responsibility will set in to a degree. Um, so I think it more provides protection for the owners from themselves. And you see that more in basketball because in basketball, you used to be able to sign a seven-year contract down five or four, depending upon whether you're on your staying with the same team or going to another team. And they're, since their contract's fully guaranteed for the most part, like in baseball, that kind of limits their exposure. Um, but even if you do everything wrong, you know, owner, we saw in your sport once with McCourts, that if you sell the club, you're typically going to make a windfall because 
franchise values haven't seemed to be going down, seemed to always escalate because I was amazed at how much the Dodgers went for based on how the McCourts were running that franchise. Well, the McCourts are famous for running it as their own personal piggy bank, which, by the way, I never had an issue with. And I spend lots of time with both Frank and Jamie. I feel like if you bought a team when when let me just tell you, Jeffrey Loria was the owner I worked for uh, in Montreal and in Florida. And he got into baseball by paying $12 million to become the general partner of Montreal Expo's partnership. $12 million is all it took. And there wasn't one person in Montreal who was willing to buy the team. And then he moved to Florida. And again, there was not one person in Florida willing to take the chance, willing to buy the Marlins because John Henry had failed and Wayne Huizinga had failed. So Jeffrey was able to buy that for $158 million. The fact that he sold it for $1.2 billion is not because he's the smartest guy in the world or I'm the smartest guy in the world. It's because I think we recognized there was a problem and there was an arbitrage to be had. Right? There's a problem right. in the market that the local people didn't understand that this is an asset they thought of it as a community right and or a community asset. And we were New Yorkers and we didn't view it as a community asset. I hate to admit that, but it's true. We viewed it as a business opportunity in a business that we loved as well. So not only do you get to watch baseball games and around players and be around interesting people and maybe even win a World Series, but you also get to watch your asset appreciate. So I don't think you can blame owners who recognize that like the McCourts did. If they're willing to... You either use the team as a piggy bank or lose money. Why do players have an issue with that? Players could step up and buy teams. We're starting to see that a little bit. Michael Jordan is an owner. Um, Alex Rodriguez is starting, is going to buy into or be a part owner of the Minnesota Timberwolves. So I think as player salaries escalate and increase, you're going to see like a LeBron James down the road become an owner. And it'll be interesting to see how LeBron, the owner, is relative to LeBron, the player, because now Michael Jordan, the owner, still has part of the player perspective, but he's st- nonetheless, he is an owner, and that's where his allegiances are now. How do you feel he's done as an owner? Uh, much better player than he is an owner, even though he got the LaMelo ball pick right. <laughs> I got to tell you that uh, forgetting the fact that Jordan is the best player in NBA history as an owner, I think it's very clear that he has not been successful if you base it on the performance on the field. And that's sort of interesting when the best players, that's why my view is always the best players can never be coaches or managers uh, because they just see the game differently. They played it differently and they can't express to other players or can't understand why their players can't thread the needle the way they can or figure out where a player is going to be because they see it before it happens. But owning a team is something Dwayne Wade just went to Utah. Right. Right. He left Miami to go to Utah because he has feeling in this desire to be an owner. And the reason why players want to be owners, I think, is the, the power of ownership is so significant because of the ego. If you can build a winning team and do something for yourself and for your community, all these billionaires who have run these businesses, Joel, they will tell you that winning a championship was far greater than any success they ever had in their other businesses. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. 
From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Oh, no doubt about that. And getting back to your point about great players not being successful, Magic Johnson didn't last long as a Lakers coach. Uh, that was years ago, but he became very frustrated from the points you were talking about because they couldn't comprehend how he saw the game. I know Jerry West at one point was a Lakers coach, and he got out of it for a similar reason and became arguably one of the best uh, executives in NBA history. There's no doubt. By the way, Larry Bird was a coach. Isaiah Thomas was a coach, a failed coach in New York and Indiana and several places. And those are some of the best players of all time. And the better you look at Pat Riley or Phil Jackson, that like the Joe Torres of the world or the Joe Girardis in baseball who were OK players. They made it to the big leagues. They made it to the NBA, but they were not stars. Phil Jackson was a complimentary player in the 70 Knicks, 73 Knicks, and Pat Riley won a title, I believe, with the Lakers as sort of a sixth-man type of guy, but certainly never the star. So well, there's an old saying, those who can't do teach. I know that's a little extreme because those guys could actually do because they got to the NBA level, but you're superstars, even star players. There is no doubt. I want to ask you about your salary cap in the NFL there was a lot of talk when the TV deals were signed. NFL made this big announcement. I think, what was it, uh, what, 300 billion or 100 billion, some unbelievable number in the new TV deal. And people were wondering how that will trickle down because that came the same day when the NFL announced that it was holding up the cap artificially in order to try to even out the hit that the pandemic happened uh, as we all live through with this new NFL TV deal, what do you think will happen with player contracts? Is it going to be felt only at the top levels, like the Patrick Mahomes of the world, or do you think the middle class is going to benefit from this increase in revenue? Middle class slightly, but it's really going to be the superstars because the middle class has been shrinking and that's primarily because of the implementation of a wage scale. So, You've got your really cheap labor under the rookie under the rookie wage scale. So that's kind of squeezed the middle class and you're always going to take care of your stars. So there'll be a marginal benefit to the middle class, but it's really going to be the rich get richer. Have you ever thought about how sports is a mirror to society where the world we live in now, where the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poor and the middle class is disappearing and we talk about that a lot. And in baseball, that's all they're talking about at the bargaining table, which is how to take care of the middle class of players who are just getting forgotten about because of people like you who, and I say this as complimentary, when you're analytical and you are reporting to your owner and you've got two players in front of you, one who would be paid $5 million and one who would be paid the minimum $600,000 in baseball's case, and they will give you the same likelihood of winning a game or the same win above replacement, if you will, how can you tell your owner that you need to sign the $5 million guy? Oh, you can't. And there's no real sentimentality in sports, particularly from a business standpoint. Um, one thing we've seen that the NFL's tried to do to help 
the middle class or the veteran player that there's something called a veteran salary benefit contract where you signed for your league minimum and there's no more than $137,500 in additional compensation. If you sign this type of one-year deal, you count on the cap at the minimum salary for a two-year player. So that's to kind of help the older player stick around. But still, that's only a small benefit. But yeah, if you've got a young player who can do what a older vet who's going to be making a lot more money can do, unless there's some huge intangible, and I can't think of any huge intangibles which would account for millions of dollars, the young player is going to get the, get the job and the older guy is going to be um, left out. I just don't know how we change that because I'm looking at the NFL, which is obviously very star-driven, and you are seeing types of players getting bigger deals. In my day, you never saw offensive linemen getting paid what they're getting paid now, but now teams are realizing that if you don't protect your quarterback – what exactly are you doing? And so I'm wondering what your suggestion would be, if any, that you would change in football or baseball, frankly, that would help those veterans other than those small things that both baseball and football do, which, by the way, as someone who ran a team for 18 years, it didn't make one tinker's damn of difference. Those little things that they would try to do to get us to sign some of the middle class guys, we just would never do it. Outside of going to a basketball model where you have a mid-level exception, which is based on the average salary, I'm not really sure how you're going to be able to handle that because teams are going to run their business in a very prudent way, and it's going to be more prudent for the younger cheap guy uh, who's going to be just as productive or close to it as the more expensive older vet. So outside of having some sort of cap exception like that, I don't really think you're going to have any way to combat it. So I want to bring this full circle and ask you a straight up question. You have a stable of players as an agent. Is it not correct that you want to stay as far away from middle class players as possible? Don't you want either the superstars or the young players only? Oh yeah. You actually, you don't want fringe guys as well, because if you have guys who are on a roster bubble where you got the middle class guys who get cut, then you become an employment agency where it is your job. If you're an agent who's doing what you're supposed to do, find opportunities for them to be put in front of teams for a workout tryout situation so they can get another job. Some agents take the position that it's not my job to beat the bushes, call teams and get a guy a job. Teams know who who's available and they'll call me. I didn't take that position that's a very time consuming process. So you'd rather have the star player who was secure as opposed to the guy who's in a tenuous situation or late round pick, because unless they become good starters, the odds of a late round pick getting a significant second contract aren't that great. Those are going to be more your fringe guys who could be on a roster, could be on a practice squad, could be out of work. That, becomes a very time-consuming process. That's not even a good loss leader. So you mentioned something that you had to do that I always thought was incorrect, and I'm cynical about it. When a team owner would say, or a GM would come out publicly and say, yeah, we've told Sam Darnold as an example, although it wasn't him, maybe been Stafford this offseason. I'm trying to remember who. Hey, you're not in our plans. Feel free to call around and see if you can get yourself traded. Did you actually ever get a call from a team saying, hey, we've got your player. You know that. We want to trade him. We'll go ahead and call and get that done. 
Did that really ever happen? Oh, actually, once it did. Um, with um, amazing. Tell me Pat- about it, please. Patrick Sertan. Um, when he hit, had two years left on his contract, we started contract negotiations with the Dolphins for an extension. And it became very clear very early on that we were never going to reach an agreement on a contract. So heading into his contract year, they decided that he's not going to be signable for another deal. So Joe, why try- did it, Joe, I'm sorry. Why did it become clear? Tell me how that works when you know as an agent, it's you just said and you rolled it off your tongue. It became clear that a deal wasn't going to get done. How did you know? Oh, because we wanted to be paid like Chris McAllister and Champ Bailey because we thought we were that caliber of player. And they said, there's no way that's ever going to happen. Okay. So we were never going to meet in terms of any type of uh, value. We had a fundamental agreement on value. So they were kind of forward thinking in terms of, okay, instead of letting him play his contract, then at most getting a third round compensatory pick, let's trade him because he's not going to be ultimately signable. And they gave us permission to shop to other teams we actually found a team that was interested, Kansas City. Then it became up to Kansas City and the Dolphins to work out a deal while we had permission to work out a new contract with Kansas City. We actually had a new contract agreed to with Kansas City before the Dolphins in Kansas City could work out trade compensation. Did you try to get involved in the trade compensation? Did you tell the Kansas City what they offered to get them? No, that wasn't really our domain. It's kind of like they have to figure out what they think the value was worth. But um, our job was to find, identify a team that was interested and let them kind of try to have a meeting of the minds while we were also trying to get a contract in place should they, should they be able to do that. And also knowing that we were able to find, have a new contract, they're going to have to fear because there's no way Pat was going to go back there knowing that he could have made X here, but you guys couldn't agree on compensation. It's interesting because as a president, I'm not sure that I would have agreed to a contract with a player without knowing what I had to give up to get the player, because that goes into my calculus as I think about what we can offer the player. So it's strange that in football, it may work the opposite way where you had a deal with Kansas city for money before they knew what assets they'd have to give up to get them. Yeah, because we had our deal done about a week before they had the trade compensation set because we actually thought they were going to be able to agree sooner than they actually did. But I'm not sure if Carl, Carl Peterson was the CEO, GM, president of Kansas City. I'm not sure. And he used to drive a hard bargain generally, so I suspect it was more on his end than, than Miami's end. I want to segue uh, to what's been going on in the last couple of weeks, the intersection between sports and politics. The fact that in my mind, uh, sports has never been so politically involved, certainly in my history with sports. I mean, it seems as though it's not just that players and owners are doing the opposite of shutting up and dribbling. It's as though we've, they've taken it upon themselves to actually be the difference they want to see, which is an incredible thing that we're witnessing. When you're talking to players about their involvement, do you caution them ever in your mind? Would you caution them as an agent? Would you tell them to just you be you and we'll worry about your career later? How do you walk the line that players are being forced to walk? And I just want to give you a frame of reference. In basketball, when in the bubble, they got to put on their uniform last year, Black Lives Matter or I Can't Breathe. Remember, they were allowed to put 
uh, something. And LeBron James had to make an announcement. He had to go public and saying, I'm choosing none. I'm putting my name on the back. And it's a personal decision. But players who aren't LeBron James, I believe, and there were rumors to this effect, felt pressure into choosing one, even though they may not have understood the issue or didn't know which to choose. How would you deal with that? And what do you think about the intersection right now between sports and politics? Well, it's interesting that we've come from the 90s aspect where with Michael Jordan, it was he made this statement, which has kind of been miscast, according to Sam Smith, Republicans buy shoes, too, and was very apolitical to which was a far cry from what we saw with the Bill Russell days where you had social activism and in the 68 Olympics with Tommy Smith and, and John Carlos to now. Colin Kaepernick was the one that kind of brought it full circle, and he's the one who's paid the price that he's basically been blackballed. His career ended over stance he took the national anthem, but now it's become more acceptable over the past couple of years. So if I had players right now, one, I wouldn't want them to do anything which they weren't comfortable doing. But also, depending upon who they were, for all players, I'd explain to them the pros and cons for what they can do. Because what you do as an agent is you're supposed to give them the good and the bad of a situation and help them make what's the best decision for them. So for a star player, you're going to have more latitude. You're more latitude as a star player to do anything because generally the better player you are, the more teams going to tolerate. If you're a fringe guy, that can be a different story. So it's all going to depend on where they are. But if they felt strongly about becoming political or socially active, then that's the prerogative. I would help them find means to do that. But at the same time, the less of a star player they are, I would caution them that this could have more ramifications for you than somebody else on the team. Can I push back on Colin Kaepernick for one second? Yeah. Did you, did you consider him a star player? Um, well, he was one of the highest paid quarterbacks when he signed, so I wouldn't. I, I would say that, but do you think that if he were, I, and listen, there's no question in my mind that there was an active not a conspiracy, just a belief that having him on your team was not going to be worth it. The juice was not going to be worth the squeeze, right? If Colin Kaepernick had been Pat Mahomes and Patrick Mahomes. Oh, if he's Patrick Mahomes, if he's Tom Brady or Peyton Manning, then, yeah, you're not going to do anything. But he was a starting caliber quarterback at the time, although his best years had come a couple of years beforehand. And then he did make one egregious mistake. He, I think he would have had a job with the Ravens, but for his girlfriend and having some social media posts, which he didn't disavow, which uh, really offended the owner. So I think that was part of a self-inflicted room, but he stuck by his convictions and wasn't going to have his girlfriend walk it back. But, there was a cost to that. Was social media around? When, when did you stop being an agent? What year, Joel? Oh, social media was not around by the time I stopped. I've been out of business for about 10 so years. So can you so. imagine being an agent right now, worrying about the social media accounts of all your players? I can't even, you talk about babysitting. I can't even imagine what it would be to have to look at TikToks of all your players. Oh, yeah. Well, the first thing you do with a rookie client, from what I understand now, is you scrub, you scrub their social media because you, Teams go back and look at what you post, and it's kind of unfair if you're going to be held accountable for something you post when you're 15, 16 years old. 
but nonetheless, teams do look at that. Stuff. So it's your responsibility to the extent you can eliminate that. I remember uh, hearing about something a few years ago when Larry Nance Jr. was drafted by the Lakers. He had some derogatory Twitter post about Kobe Bryant that surfaced after a couple of days after he was drafted. So he had to actually call and apologize to Kobe Bryant for things he said when he was in high school. So when you're in high school, you don't think about long-term ramifications for things. And you will sometimes stream of consciously put things out on social media. But if you end up having any significant athletic talent, that can come back to haunt you. So it's the agent's job to try to diffuse that as much as possible. And I think now as an agent, you have to educate your players on social media, on the good, the bad, and the ugly. And Kevin Durant does it all the time, but there's really no... Nothing good that can come from getting into a Twitter war with a fan or even another celebrity because it's going to reflect poorly on you. Even I get a bunch of negative comments on social media, and I, I don't respond to those just because it's not going to benefit me. I will block people if, if they get too offensive, but I try to ignore that stuff. <laughs> You know, you talk about what happened with uh, Larry Nance. It m- reminds me of a baseball player, Josh Hader, a great reliever for the Milwaukee Brewers, got in trouble the day he was an all-star for posts that he had back in high school. And I'm thinking about time as an agent and what we did as executives where we would media train the athletes. And now media training is taken on a whole new level because it used to be that we were training them how to talk to reporters who had microphones. Now we're teaching them training them in social media. But by the time we get these players, it's like they already think they're veterans of social media. They've grown up with social media. They think they understand and know social media, but we show them what we do when we draft these players, how we go back and look at every post, how they think, oh, I deleted that. No one could see that. And we say, no, no, we see everything. And it's been a hard thing for players to realize and for basically all young people to realize that what you do when you're in high school in the old days, it didn't matter because no one was paying attention. Oh, now God forbid if people saw stuff I did when I was in high God. school <laughs> or even well, in college. And there, give me the best thing you did that you wouldn't want to read. Oh, I'm not, I'm not even going to comment <laughs> on that one. <laughs> Joe, I truly appreciate your time. I could keep going. I, I think uh, you've given me so much of your time already. We're so thankful for you to be with us at Nothing Personal. Your job is fascinating, and it is a pleasure. So happy you're with us at CBS Sports as the salary cap expert, former agent. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Joe. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.